So, um, today we've got the next in our series of talks about the Beatitudes, as David said before. Um, or as they're often called, the beautiful attitudes, which Jesus taught as part of his Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read all the verses that we've looked at um, so far in Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll focus in on the verse that we're going to be looking at this week, which is verse 6. So, chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It obviously goes on quite a lot further than, than, the, um, than the Beatitudes. Uh, so, I was going to start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirits, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's our verse for this week. The kingdom of heaven that um, Jesus refers to in verse 3 was something that he talked a lot about during his earthly ministry, wasn't it? Many references to it throughout Matthew's Gospel, um, talking about the character of the kingdom and also the assurance that it was near. But when we've got this reference to it right at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus wasn't setting out the constitution of the kingdom. He wasn't setting out the rules of the kingdom and he wasn't explaining how someone... Um, could enter it. Uh, in fact, even if someone was a shining example of all of the uh, um, attitudes and behaviours that we find in the Sermon of the Mount, um, they still wouldn't be good enough for heaven, would they? Um, as we know, it is only by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that we can be declared good enough to enter God's kingdom. And the value of that sacrifice is only attributed to us when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. <clears throat> so, if the Sermon on the Mount um, doesn't give us a constitution or an entry criteria for God's kingdom, what is it? As um, David was explaining last week, um, what these verses are describing is what God expects of someone who has already believed, someone who is growing spiritually, someone who is learning more and more what it really means to be a Christian. By the way, I've been careful to say, that, or, or rather not to say, that these verses describe what we might see in a maturing Christian, because unlike the creed of the Pharisees, um, who cared very much about what people could see on the outside. Their, their religion was all about their outward behaviours. The qualities that we're learning about in these Beatitudes, um, they're all internal qualities, aren't they? There might be outward evidence um, of them, because true Christian faith always involves action, um, but we're in no position to judge the condition and the aspirations of someone's heart. Um, when we look at them from the outside, um, only God can do that, as we know from uh, 1 
1 Samuel 16, whereas we tend to look at people from the outside, um, God only looks at the, at the heart. And so really it's only God who is able to tell if someone is truly living up to his expectations. So let's get into um, the passage. Blessed, first word of every verse. Now I know we've already made some comments about um, this word in our previous talks, but I would just like to say a little bit more about it because really this word is critical to our understanding of, of all the Beatitudes. Um, what does it mean, really? Most English versions um, um, of the Bible translate the original Greek words um, as blessed. A few versions translate it as happy. I think all the experts generally agree that uh, whichever word you look at, none of the words which are used to translate the original really convey um, the full meaning. It's interesting to find that um, some scholars um, think that there is, within the meaning, the thought of congratulation. So, oh, that's interesting. And I think it's what they're getting at, is that depending on the kind of things that you or I might um, approve of, um, we might say to someone, well done you, if someone does something that we think is particularly um, praiseworthy. And I think that's what the scholars mean when they say that there is this element of congratulation um, in the word. Now, I'm not saying that a better translation would be, well done you. Um, but when Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven on another occasion, um, in Matthew 25, and he told the parable of the talents, the blessing for the faithful servants began with the congratulation of their master. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I guess that an important question is whether or not we care very much about that. A question to ask ourselves. And if we do care about it, <coughs> do we care more about God's approval than we care about the approval of others? Whose approval matters most to us? Now, as I said, only a few versions um, translate the word as happy, and most go with the word blessed. And I do think that's the, the better word. But the parable of the talents does conclude with the master um, inviting his servants to share in his happiness. So I think happiness um, is part of the meaning, um, but it's a, it's a wider meaning than that. Um, and I don't think that Jesus was declaring how people would necessarily feel if they had all of these qualities. Um, certainly not all the time and certainly not in this life. But I think G Jesus, as I say, was um, describing mostly how God views our lives in this world. God's approval of the transformation that he sees in us as a result of his ongoing work and the work of the Holy Spirit. Someone uh, once said that this word blessed, uh, another way of looking at it is that it is the approval of heaven, um, or the applause of heaven rather, the applause of heaven. Um, and I thought that was quite a nice 
um, little um, slant on it. It's the approval of God and it is the applause of heaven. We can perhaps take that from this word blessed as we go through. Collectively, these verses are telling us what God thinks about the person who has managed to navigate themselves around all of the distractions and the temptations and the values and the ambitions of this world and have found what God might otherwise call the good life. The good life. And as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, <coughs> that's what he came to give us. The good life. He says, it says that he came so that we might have life to the full. It's the good life. Might not be the good life as some people might define it, but it is the good life as God defines it. So then, verse 6. Let's get on to it. Bit of a long introduction, sorry. Um, verse 6, righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm going to come back to the hunger and thirst in a few minutes. The basic meaning of those words is desire, so let's just um, use that for now. Let's think about this righteousness that the hunger and thirst relates to. What kind of righteousness should we desire? Well, it's not the imputed righteousness of Romans 1 and 17, is it? Uh, the righteousness that comes through faith. As believers, we do not need to desire that righteousness because we've already got it as we were thinking as part of our worship this morning. Some have suggested that it includes perhaps social justice. That's what Jesus was talking about. The rightness of how people are treated in the world. And I do think that's part of it. But only because a desire for social justice is completely compatible with the wider teachings of the Lord Jesus, especially the command that we should love our neighbour as we love ourselves. As he said in Matthew 22, loving our neighbour really is a key part of all God's commandments. And our response to all of God's commandments is key to the righteousness that Jesus was talking about in this verse. In fact, it's even more than our response to our um, it's even more than our response to specific commands. And that's what the Pharisees used to get hung up on, whether or not they were following all of God's specific rules. I think Jesus was talking about our desire to live according to God's will in all aspects of our lives, which includes our priorities, our values, the things that we do and how we do them. It includes our character. Who we are when no one is looking. It's the extent to which the Holy Spirit is producing his fruit in our lives. The more and more that we are becoming Christ-like. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, didn't he? Saying that they should pray and desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which means in our personal lives. And it means in our family lives. And in our church community life. And, as I say, in the wider world. And if we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, when we look at things going on in the world, or in our neighbourhood, or in our families, or workplace, or in our personal lives, things which are not right 
then we will want to do something about them, won't we, if we possibly can. And how much we want that. How much we want to make that kind of a difference in the world will depend on the extent of our hunger and thirst. So, let's think a little bit about those two words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The definitions of hunger and thirst in my Greek Bible dictionary, I like to just throw that in, it makes me sound clever that I've got a Greek Bible dictionary, it's just a dictionary. If you look up the word, it tells you what the original meaning was, in the opinion of various scholars, as best as they're able to tell it. Um, but it says there that the original meaning uh, words mean to desire or long for something earnestly or passionately. In other words, it says that we should want it quite a lot, doesn't it? Actually, no, it doesn't mean that at all, does it? Not quite a lot. It means that we should want it passionately and earnestly. That's, that's an awful lot, isn't it? As I said previously, sometimes we do need to pause it's easy to run to the Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, which are so readily available these days, and think, oh, there's a definition. But we need to think about the English words that the translators have used, that they've spent so much time and care in choosing, and really understand what those English words actually mean. It's easy for us to say that we're hungry or thirsty for something, but actually, in the UK at least, most of us really have little idea of what those words really mean. We have little idea of what it means to be truly hungry or thirsty for something. I know the cost of living crisis is putting more and more people on the breadline. And there are people who are struggling to feed themselves and their families. And so there are people who have a much better understanding than others of what it means to be hungry and thirsty, but if we lived in one of the countries of the world where there is a complete lack of clean water and where there is hardly any food and where people um, die of malnutrition, we really would have a proper understanding of what hunger and thirst is, wouldn't we? To desire something more than anything else, because our life dependent on it. And in this context, I suggest that the thing we should be hungering and thirsting after is something that our spiritual lives depend on. Because without that hunger and thirst and what it leads to, then spiritually, as far as our service for the Lord and our liveliness for the Lord is concerned, we too can die of malnutrition. I read a book once um, called um, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I don't know if anyone's, no one's read it. You'd certainly remember it if you'd read the book. Um, it's the autobiography it's, um, of a guy, describes a guy um, who got stuck in a canyon in America. Uh, he went canyoning. Um, and um, he, he slipped. Um, the boulder he was climbing down started to move and he, and he slipped and he fell, but not before the boulder then rolled over and completely trapped his, um, his arm. And he tried, and he tried, but no matter how hard he pushed on the boulder, and no matter how hard he pulled on his arm, he could not free it. 
uh, couldn't get his arm out and he was in a remote place and he knew it was very unlikely that anyone was going to find him. And as time went by, the seriousness of his situation really started to dawn on him and with no food or water, uh, he knew that eventually this guy who'd just gone to do a bit of climbing, he knew he was, he was going to die. Um, and eventually, as that reality dawned on him more and more, he found the strength to do things that he never thought he could ever, ever do. Very reluctantly, at first, as the thirst got to him, he eventually managed with his free arm and I think a bottle of water that he'd had but finished and without going into the details, he managed to find a way to drink his own urine and that kept him going for a while. But then after that and still with no prospect of any help in sight, eventually he did the even more unthinkable thing as he eventually found the strength, the courage, the ability to cut off the thing that was trapping him with a blunt penknife, he cut off his arm. Now I'm not going to say any more about that story because I know it's very, very gory, but I just wanted to give a little flavour, a little indication of what real hunger and thirst can be like when you want something so desperately that you will do anything to get it. And my point here is just to pose the question, what would you or I be willing to do? What would we be willing to suffer for the sake of doing God's will in our lives and in the world around us? Another word that we sometimes use in relation to um, um, hunger and thirst um, other than desire um, is the word appetite. And if we think about our appetites, we know that it's not just about how much we want something, it's also about what it is that we want. Um, some people have an appetite for the right things, but it's a very small appetite. Um, they don't want them very much. Um, other people have a big appetite, but it might be for the wrong things. And you know the saying that you are what you eat. Well, it's true in relation to our food diet, and it is also true in relation to our spiritual diets. The more we eat of the wrong things, the more spiritually malnourished we can become. We need a strong appetite. We need an insatiable appetite and thirst. But it has to be for the right things. It has to be for God's righteousness. To have more of God in our lives. To live the way that he wants us to live. To be the people that he wants us to be. Here's a couple of scriptures which just give us an idea of what that looks like in the experience of other people. Psalm 63 verse 1, one of the psalms attributed to David. Uh, it begins, You God are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You might think about same about the world that we live in today, isn't it? Meta that, that same metaphor applies. It's like a desert. It is dry and parched from a spiritual perspective. Another psalm, Psalm 42, not attributed to David, but it expresses a similar thirst. Uh, it says, as the deer pants for streams of water, 
So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. You ever find it quite hard to read verses like that and you know, knowing that this, is, you know, this was written by someone who knows the same God that, that we know and kind of wonder whether maybe um, our appetite, our desire um, is not quite the same as the psalmist that we're reading about here. Satisfaction. I said earlier that um, happiness um, isn't necessarily the result of embracing these beautiful attitudes, at least not in the way that we normally think of being happy. But there is a promise for us in each of these verses. So verse 6 said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The promise is that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. That's the meaning of, of the word. The more we seek to do God's will in our lives, and the more we seek to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, and the more we allow the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives, the more we will enjoy our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And in that sense, we will be filled. We will be satisfied. The satisfaction here is a deeper kind of happiness, isn't it? It's an inner joy that isn't dependent on external circumstances. So it can be there in the midst of the most um, difficult challenges. And it, it, it can be there. It can, there can be that joy in the midst of the deepest of sorrows. But whether we can ever be truly satisfied, truly filled in this life, I think that's another matter. Because the verse suggests that despite us being filled, there is an ongoing hunger and thirst. And I think that's because the closer we get to the Lord, the more we the closer we want to become and the more we want to know him and what he wants um, to see in our lives the less tolerant perhaps we come uh, we become of our own um, failings and, and weaknesses I know I've shared this um, little story um, several times before but some of you will remember our brother Stanley Webster that used to be one of the elders in the church in Liverpool when I used to go there and it was it was um, it was Stanley who was um, well regarded for being a godly man a very wise man and having a great knowledge of the scriptures and a great knowledge of his God and yet he's the one who said that he realized that the more you know the more you realize how little you know does that make sense it was similar with the Apostle Paul you know he said in 2 Timothy 1 and 12 that he knew Christ. He said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have instructed to him. He said, I know, I know Christ. And then in Philippians 3 and 10, he says he still wants to know more. He says, I want to know Christ. What's that, Paul? I thought you already knew Christ. You just said you knew Christ, and now you're saying you want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, he said. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. 
He already knew Christ, but he wanted to know him more. He was hungry and thirsty for an even closer relationship and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Is that how we ever feel? So let me conclude with this. In the verse that we've looked at today, Jesus is telling us that we need a strong appetite for knowing God and for his will to be done in our own lives and in the world around us. If we have such an appetite, firstly, we will have God's approval, not to mention the applause of heaven, so to speak. And really, we should care about what God thinks of us more than anything else. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we will be filled. That's the promise. We will be spiritually satisfied. We'll have an inner peace. In other words, we'll discover what it means to live the good life, the life that God has designed for us, the life that God wants us to enjoy, notwithstanding the difficulties that we might still experience living in a sinful world. But just one thing to leave us with. Um, what do we do if we've lost our righteousness, our appetite for righteousness? How do we get it back? Well, I think there might be a reason for the order of the verses that we've got in this in this passage because each one seems to build on the previous one. We start with the poverty of spirit in verse three. And we need to realize that there is nothing within us that commends us to God. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are totally dependent on God. Then in verse four, we're encouraged to look at sin the way that God does, to mourn our own sins and the sin in the world around us, and to repent and to, to confess our sins to the only one who is able to forgive us and to help us. Thirdly, the more honest we are with ourselves about our true spiritual condition, the more contempt we'll have for our pride, in the words of that well-known hymn. As we survey the wondrous cross, the more humble it should make us, which is a quality which goes very nicely with a gentle, um, the gentle spirit that's encouraged in verse 5. And the more we live out those first three beautiful attitudes, the more our appetite should be stimulated um, such that we do hunger and thirst for righteousness. And like the guy that was stuck in the canyon, that hunger and thirst should drive us to do everything else as we try to live out God's will in our lives. So I'm going to leave it there. I um, hope there was some thoughts in there that have been helpful on the subject of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, God's will in our lives, um, and enjoying the prospect of the fulfilment of his promise that we will be satisfied.